what we're going to do tonight. Um, don't be scared to be interactive. I may need help reading some of this. But the title is The Scripture as We Live It. And uh, I'll show you what I mean by that here in just a second. The word here says in James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We have an obligation to put the word into practice. Uh, to sit and listen uh, is a blessing, but it, it starts and ends with the reading of the word. If you don't put it into practice in your daily life, uh, it's not a word that's going to save you. Uh, otherwise, rocks would be saved, ants would be saved, little church mouse would get saved. Uh, what happens when we hear the word and adapt it to conform with our lifestyle rather than adapting and conforming our lifestyle to the Word? That's a good question. I, I want to submit to you that we're going to go through some things here in a second that are not meant to be a college lecture. They're meant to be thought-provoking. They're meant to get you to re-examine how we apply some of these words. This next one, 2 Corinthians 3.3 says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. When you think about these two scriptures combined, as you practice the Word, as you are living it out, this is like a walking billboard that advertises Jesus. Well, what happens when we begin to adapt the Word to better suit our environment, to better suit our likes and dislikes? It is no different than taking out a scratch marker, a black highlighter, and crossing off parts of the Word. And when we do that, what people see is an incomplete picture of Jesus as displayed in your life. I wanted to examine some scriptures tonight that when you look at them, I've drawn a line through some unsavory parts. Some parts that you might not normally like or want to see practiced in your life. And we've put in red letters the way that people probably see it lived out rather than the way the Word wrote it. I meant for this to be thought-provoking. <coughs> The church scriptures as we live them. Now there was in the church at Antioch a pastor teacher, Saul. Do you see what's crossed out up here? The prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius, Menaean, members of Herod's court, the Tetrarch. All of these people were part of the church. But in the church today, have you ever heard anybody named as a prophet and a teacher? I mean, not unless they were trying to steal your money on the weird-haired TV show that is on. No, we don't have it. Why? Because it's unsavory. There's no room for the embarrassing five-fold ministry in the church today. We just have pastors, and they put their name on the church so you know that the church is theirs. This was not so in the New Testament. This was not so at all. And there was a five-fold ministry like five fingers on your hand for a reason. I wonder how many of us and our thoughts have crossed out these things. Pastoral qualifications. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble occupation. The Bible doesn't call this an occupation. In fact, Jews forbid that you take the Torah and use it as a shovel to earn a living. But today, it's a career path. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, able to teach. He must keep God's church. He must not be a recent convert, but must be a seminary graduate. <laughs> By the way, these red-letter words are not like your Bibles. These red-letter words are our words instead of Jesus. In some Bibles, when you see red letters, it's because it's Jesus' words. 
For the purpose of our display tonight, we've crossed out the unsavory things, like a pastor's qualifications are to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. How many times have you been to your pastor's house? Oh yeah, he'll come to your house when you first join the church. Right? Do you ever get to go see his house? Some of them have security gates and guards. He can't be a drunkard. Stay away from that grape juice. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. His own household needs to be well. His children need to treat him with dignity and be submissive. He needs to manage his household well. When is the last time a pastoral search committee examined a man's family? Well, our pastoral qualifications have been reduced to academic prowess. That's what they've been reduced to. If he's a seminary graduate, it will work. By the way, you'll notice at the bottom of these, I put the scripture reference, and just for fun, I wrote the words remix next to it. When you don't like a song, you can remix it. Or maybe, like Vanilla Ice, you can sample it a little bit. You can take the part you like and work it into kind of your own thing and ignore the copyrights. <laughs> How about the foundation of the church? This is what a church is for. And when I came to you, brothers, look at what's crossed off did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power, this is what it's supposed to say. But as we live it, it might say something more like this. And I, when I came to you, I brought a demographic study, a core group, a launch schedule, and financial support that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God and the almighty almanac by which we draw our statistics. When your qualifications for the pastorate are wrong, when your foundation for the church is wrong, is it any surprise that we excel in numbers and money, but nowhere in the attributes of Christ? Function of the leadership. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. This is what it's supposed to say. But in today's church, in our new revised version, maybe we could say it like this. So I exhort, exhort the elders among you, preach sermons, organize programs, officiate weddings and funerals, administer finances, supervise the employees. In other words, don't worry about problems. Don't worry about behavior. Don't worry about sin. Let's run a big daycare and focus on money and numbers. We could even have a quota and tell our, our young leaders who are zealous for the Lord, you have this many to draw in. Don't worry about whether or not they're born again. In fact, don't say anything that might offend them because if one leaves, you're a failure. If somebody has left, you're a failure because the purpose is that we retain fish of all kinds. We don't throw any back. Never mind the fact that some are not fit for the kingdom because their hearts have not been prepared. Wow. But you know, so-and-so is the most successful pastor. Hi again? Do you know him? You ever been in his house? How's his family work? Well, the picture on the book looks pretty. Activities of a pastor. What do you want from a pastor? But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This comes from Acts 6.4. But maybe the remix should say this. But pastors should devote themselves to studying the Bible, commentaries, and other books for 20 plus hours per week in preparation for delivering sermons. I mean, this is the work of a pastor. He must be a great orator. Really? Would you be surprised to know in the first century they didn't have hour-long exhortations where people sat and listened like this? Not at all. 
The church brought the word. The pastor's job was to make sure they read correctly from it, to make sure they were applying it correctly, to go love and nurture and take uh, correction and encouragement to the sheep, not to impress them with their oration. In fact, look at the Corinthian church. They criticized Paul for not being an orator. Pastors and scholars. Pastors are scholars, academics and theologians. There's no time to get involved in the petty issues associated with those people's problems. It's become easy for pastors just to go, hmm, it'll work out. Look, throw some change in the plate, don't make a disturbance, and it'll all be okay. This is not pastoring. You cannot do everything in an opposite fashion of what the Scripture says and get the result that the Scripture promises, and yet we've been working at it for, I don't know, 100 years? The age of the super pastor is here. <laughs> I mean, think about this. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. This is what Paul wrote. Today it would say, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. Since I am the leader in the church, you need help from me. But I don't need help from you. Yeah, I'm in the ivory tower. I am the sage on the stage. And why do we allow this kind of exaltation? Because it requires nothing of the people in the seats. Our sage is better than your sage. Our sage can compact that sermon into 23 minutes and we all feel good about ourselves when we leave. Our sage never preaches on things that make me uncomfortable. This kind of demagoguery is ridiculous. This is not Christianity. Christianity is a loving, interactive relationship. You know that the shepherds in Israel literally lived among their sheep? When it was cold outside, they huddled the sheep around them and them around the sheep and they had things each other needed. They lived with their sheep like some people loved their dogs. If there was a dangerous time in that sheep's life, if there were wolves and predators around, the pastor didn't, or the shepherd didn't just shout some word of encouragement to him from a distance. He built a rock gate around them. He put thorns and briars on the top so they didn't jump out when they were scared and nothing could come in. And the narrow gate that was there, he laid in, laid down his life for them. And if it got so bad he couldn't do anything else, he lit it on fire so that nothing could get over that wall of fire. And when God says in the book of Zechariah, I will be a fire around my people, every shepherd in Israel knew what this meant. It did not at all mean... I am up here, you are down there. Let me impress you with my intellect. I'll conjugate Greek verbs for you and name the kings of the dynasty of northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and see if you think I'm smart. A pastor was the guy that was there during your lowest hour where you got a medical report that was not good and didn't pray with you and walk out and go to his golf appointment. He shares in your struggles. He shares in your life. And you share in his. If you've gotten the misconception from what you see around you that the pastors in this church don't need you, you are some kind of wrong. And it's more than your finances that we need. I, I'll be honest. I try never to fish for a compliment. But I need occasionally to hear from you that you are getting something good from what we're teaching. You know why? i got 24 hours a day of another voice in my mind telling me, give up, quit, it's not working. I need things from you the same way you need things from me. The church is a symbiotic or reciprocal relationship. And not just from you to me, from your left to your right, everybody around you. This is supposed to be a living organism. But no, no, let's just lift up super pastors. A super pastor leads to something else. A superior pastor. 
The sheep have no responsibilities because superior pastor is here. The word says, let two or three people, I'm sorry, prophets speak, and let the others weigh and learn from what is said. But the way we would write this scripture today is let the pastor or someone he designates speak. And let the others learn from what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first person shut up. For one pastor can only speak per week, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the desires and plans of the pastor. You think we're kidding. When you're in a church that does not allow vocalization from the congregation during worship or any other time, what is that? Paul wrote exclusively, I mean just as clear as day, certain things must be done for the encouragement and edification of the sheep. What gives anybody the right to change what God's Word says? And if you rob the sheep of every responsibility to bring a hymn, a psalm, a prophecy, a word of encouragement, then what does your role become in Christianity? What happens to the bears in the national park when they don't have to hunt anymore? You cease to be what you were called to be. At first, it's fine. Go to a holy place on a holy day. Watch men in holy clothes for a holy fee tell you holy things. And it all feels just fine until you lose your identity in Christ and all you are is somebody that exists to tithe. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. God wants so much more than 10% of your income. So now, some of you heard that and said, how much income does He want? I'm telling you, He wants your life. He wants your life. Sit and soak, but don't you dare contribute. What then, brothers? When you come together, let's cross out that hymn, lesson, revelation, tongue, and interpretation. I mean, after all, tongues is so controversial. What then, brothers? When you come together, find a place to sit, sing along with the band or choir, and listen to the preacher. Let all things be done as prescribed by your all-sufficient pastor. So why are you a Christian? Because I go to church. What do you do at church? I sit and listen. My dog does that every day. I walk him, I talk to him, you know. Come on now. The scripture as we live it, though. What lets people know that you are a thriving member of a church? I mean, something contributing. Because I was a charter member. I've been there 20 years. Really? Do you know the people's name that sit around you? You've been to their houses? Do you know their kids? Were you there when, when she had a miscarriage? Or there when that one's... Son had a hole in his heart? Did you interlock with them? Did you all pull the same direction and grow in each other's face? Or did you just warm a seat with your butt? See, what passes for a Christian today? Sit and soak. Never contribute. I don't think this was God's will. No participation. What we want is, sorry ladies, regurgitation. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, is what the Scripture says. But we might rewrite it. These people honor me with their lips, and that's good. That's all that really matters. You know, tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me lies. Jesus is Lord. What in your life shows that He's Lord? Because I was told to say that He's Lord. When were you born again? Well, the pastor said I was born again when I prayed a 30-second prayer with him. Really? When did your whole heart, life, and direction change for Jesus? Oh, God, where is that in the denominational statement? Oh, I'm going to honor him with my heart and my lips. Yeah, 
Are you doing that? Or do you just know how to regurgitate some point of doctrine? Come on, tell me I'm wrong. Somebody stand up and say, you know, you're way over the line, Pastor. You are very right. Oh, praise God. <laughs> Look, when people have no active role in the congregation, they aren't truly being pastored. There is nothing left but mindless, heartless, spiritless regurgitation. And then we're surprised when we sit down and you've got a real problem. Right? God, we shouldn't mention a real problem. You have an addiction in your life. There's some substance that's got a hold on you. There's some person that is alluring to you. You're tempted at work because you're not making enough money and you found a way that you could take a penny a day from every account in the business. Nobody in here saw office space. It's okay. <laughs> and in the midst of all of that, you know what fails? Your theology, because it is not your heart. It's just theology. It's not even good theology, honestly. Disconnected and defeated. Listen to this one. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Who remembers what the book of Philemon is about? It's about a giant, embarrassing, personal dispute. Maybe today we would just say, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus, and Timothy. Look, we're going to write to you, Philemon, and say, let's keep this between you and me since this is kind of personal and private. And some of these things could be troubling or embarrassing. In our churches today, if there's something that's troubling or embarrassing, we just give you the left foot of fellowship. You know, maybe you would be happier somewhere else. This is not pastoring. You read the book of Philemon. Paul tells this man, look, this brother owes you anything? Charge it to me, not to mention that you owe me your very life. And by the way, he's pretty useful to me. He ran away from you because you treated him like a slave. I'm going to send him back to you as a brother. Would you want your business written out there for the world like that? Would you like the book of Philemon, don't you? The body of Christ is something that's open. Open. Our successes, our failures, all of those things. There's no such thing as religion as a private matter. That is a devilism. I can't even put that in the book of opinions. That is the devil. How about this one? Distant demagogues, movie stars, idols. Is any one of you sick? Call some great man to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith by the great man will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise him up. Whether we're speaking about the great man or the sick person, who can tell? <laughs> yeah. Has anybody in here ever drove in a car to go see somebody with slick hair and a nice suit pray for him for healing? I want to tell you something. If God can't heal you through the head of your household, uh, ladies, your husband, if he can't heal you through the head of your local church, should be Jesus working through the fivefold ministry in your church, what makes you think that some movie star is going to get you healed? He designed the local church for your benefit. He designed your household for your benefit. But you'll get in a car and drive 18 hours to see an idiot in motorcycle boots that's talking to angels and sleeping with the ladies in the church because CNN says it's a revival. I'm not discounting revivals. I'm saying if you can't contact God in the local congregation, something's wrong with you. You're either in a bad church or you're the bad that's in the church. Something's wrong. Did you like the... You know, what kind of church is it that you have here? Well, friend, what kind of church did you come from? I came from a horrible church. This one's the same way you won't like it. 
<laughs> what kind of church do you have here? You know, well, friend, what kind of church did you come from? I came from a wonderful church. Our season had just ended there. I love those people. It's like tearing my heart to move on from them. We have exactly the same kind of church. You'll love it here. You're going to get out of this church what you brought into it. And if all you can do is watch movie stars on television that are not pastors and crave what they have, friends, you should go get it. You should. I, not only do we not aspire to be that, we go about as far as humanly possible away from it. <laughs> Just about as far. I share every weakness in my life with you and twice as many of my wife's weaknesses. <laughs> When the church doesn't function, something else rushes in to function. When there is an absence of leadership, something fills that void. Listen to these subtle changes. This is 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 4 through 8. I give thanks to my God always because of the grace that God has given to me in Christ Jesus. That in every way I was enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ confirmed in me so that I am not lacking in any spiritual gift as I wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain me to the end. Some of you might read that and go, what's wrong with it? If the red letters weren't there and I didn't have the boars crossing out words, would you even see anything wrong with it? Christianity is not about me. Christianity is not about indulging self and enriching self. The way that this was written was, I give thanks to my God always for you, for the grace that was given to you, for the way that you were enriched, were enriched, the way that Christ was confirmed among you. It was one man praising God for God's work in another man. But what do we do? We pray to my Jesus, and we have personal saviors, like a personal banking account. Friends, if you can't relate to God in a communal setting, if He's not as much the God of your neighbor as He is yours, if you have to get completely alone from your church to hear from God, you are dysfunctional. The reason is, God designed the church as one living organism. Somebody is the eyes. Somebody is the ears. Somebody is the mouth. And each part is indispensable from the other part. We are so self-centered that we think we're doing a godly thing when we say, well, I must do this. Really? You're the only member of the body of Christ today? Is that how that works? What if my left leg decided to stay home at a soccer tournament? Yeah. How about that? It doesn't work that way. God has made you to be intertwined, independent. Uh, not independent, codependent. His Spirit binds you together. That is the purpose. He said, but so-and-so made it in Africa for eight years and it was just them and Jesus. Yeah, but he didn't go there for it to be just him and Jesus. He went there to raise up others that he would bind himself to and they would bind themselves to him and God would be glorified through them. And see, that's what's wrong with the church. We want God to be glorified through me. And what he wants to do is be glorified through us. That's good. But when you lift up pastors, and they are the superior super apostles of the day, you just imitate their behavior. You can't help it. It's not lifestyle, it's doctrinal acceptance. You, however, have followed my teaching. <laughs> we just cross out everything else. What's important is do we follow the teaching? Never mind the conduct, the aim of this life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, there's a dirty word, and sufferings. 
Think about that. Paul wrote to these people in 2 Timothy. And he said, you are familiar with all of these things and you have followed them. And it is describing his entire way of life. The very favorite thing that gets me to throw up a little bit in my mouth when I'm talking with someone is when they say, oh, no, no, we love your preaching. But what they're really saying is we don't like the, we, we're not interested in joining with you in the rest of your life. We just want to be entertained. We just, we just want to hear a sermon and do our service for God. Friends, if all you like is someone's preaching, <laughs> that's not a pastoring relationship. You better learn to imitate the entire way of life. So, but I don't know them. I can't. There's 75 rows between me and them. Then it's not a church. If you can't imitate a man's way of life, he can't be your pastor. Well, I don't know anything about his way of life except what they wrote in Forbes magazine. You show me one biblical church like that. Show me one. It doesn't exist. I'd rather meet from home to home. We did it for years. I'd do it now if I could figure out how to fit all of you in my living room. I am not interested in somebody following my teaching. How many of you know that there are men who teach well and live poorly? There are men who teach poorly and live very well. If I have to choose between those two, it's going to be the latter. But really what we're looking for is we're just looking for doctrinal acceptance. Let's all toe the party line. A lack of shepherding leaves nothing for the sheep to imitate but teaching. If you don't ever get to work next to your pastor, if you never get to see him in frustration and how he handles it, if you never get to see him struggle because he's the super pastor, the superior pastor. I love the fact that some of you know that I do all kind of things that the church world doesn't do. Some of you really struggle with it. That's just fine. You don't like the fact that I watch a certain movie or that Matthew and I might burn incense before the Lord on occasion. Yeah, I was talking about a cigar and that's going on the internet of our world. Yes, it was a cigar, specifically a Maduro wrapper. That's what I like if you like Christmas gifts. <laughs> Listen to what I'm saying, though. Say, well, how could a pastor do that? But Charles Spurgeon's called the Prince of Preachers. He smoked a pipe every day. Well, that was different. It was back then. Of course, of course, it was different. I don't mind that you struggle with those things. When I say imitate my way of life, I'm talking about the tenacity with which I follow Jesus. I'm talking about the way that we have demonstrated that when it hurts, we will not back away from the king. And what about all of those other issues? Wrestle with them. You wrestle with them and decide whether they're okay for you or not. What you don't do is condemn me because you don't think they're okay. You don't like the fact that I, I don't have a single problem with wine. I, I mean, not, not a single problem with it. I also am not a drunkard. I, it's okay with me if you have a problem with it. I'll honor that to the point that we change communion. So that nobody has to damage their conscience. We will have communion with wine and communion without wine. I want you to wrestle with those things. I want each person to come to a place where with Jesus they have worked out what they believe the Word speaks about them. I do not want cookie cutters that just say, whatever the pastor says. Because there are a lot of pastors out there that are idiots. I've met them. They're not interested in anything but their 401Ks. Party line adherence. Now faith is a set of doctrines that must be accepted in order to be saved. Yeah. But you ask somebody what saves them and they will begin to spit out to you whatever their particular denominational or demonational, however you like to pronounce that word, creed is. 
The function of the local church is to put you into a position where you can hear from God and learn to take a stand that He has spoken to you personally and that the entire community can be encouraged by that process. When Darnell hears something, like this sickness will not end in death, when she hears that word and she takes her stand, and then you're trying to take a stand, you're encouraged by that. If God can speak to her, He'll speak to me too. Something is wrong when you have to call the pastor and say, pray for me. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying or asking me to pray. But if you don't feel like God will hear your prayer, something is wrong. Now, how many pastors are going to tell you that? They would prefer that they're way up here and you're down there. Of course, my prayer is closer to God. Talk to their wives. They'll tell you the truth. Do it when nobody else is around. Ask their kids. I don't know where Johnny heard that word. I bet I did. I'm telling you that the function of the local church is so that you learn to contact God and be contacted by Him and take your own stand. It's not just to hand out these are the 14 points we all are going to agree to. How have we remixed these scriptures? Majors on minors and minor on majors. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's remix that one to better fit our personal circumstances. Above all, keep checking on one another's theology earnestly. Right theology will keep you pure. Are you kidding me? Which of us in this room could not benefit from a loving attitude? Do you remember the message that we taught on intercession versus accusation? What is our heart towards our brother? To make sure theologically their T's are crossed and their I's are dotted? Or is your heart to intercede for them and make sure that their failings are not strangling them? Where is your heart? Is it to point out the guilt of the person around you because they're so stupid they don't even understand eschatology? Or is your heart to help them because you see a weakness in their life, something that you could stand in the gap with them? And help bridge the gap and be Jesus. See, a church is formed of people that care more about the person sitting on their left and their right than they care about themselves. But that's saying something in this country where there's a great love for self. We're convinced the problem with this is we don't love self enough. We hire people to tell us better things about ourselves. There are no self-esteem problems when you know who you are in Christ. There are no peer pressure problems when you have a fear of God and a fellowship with the Holy Spirit. All of those things are modern humanistic inventions to excuse selfish behavior in the church. Amen. No empathy, only self-righteousness. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, is what Romans 15 says. If you're strong, you have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the person around you. But maybe we should remix it. We who are right have an obligation to correct the errors of those who are wrong. And we're justified if they won't listen to us and never speaking to them again. It's like we forget that if we don't show mercy, none will be shown to us. It's like we just blotted it right out of the book. I mean, it's okay, though, because when we were born again, everything in our life was set right. We never had another struggle again, did we? That's why we can look down upon our brother. It's because we've achieved some kind of perfection. 
I don't know if I've ever preached one quite this sarcastic, but I hope you're getting the point. I want to ask you, is it edification or is it execution? Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault just between you and him alone. What I mean by that is make sure you use some kind of passive, impersonal form of communication, particularly electronic, like text or a private message. If he hears you, you have gained your brother, but if he will not listen, CC an email to everybody he knows demonstrating that you're right. Destroy his reputation if you can. I mean, put it out on Facebook for the world to see. This is how the church operates. My husband is such an idiot. Do you know what he did yesterday? Or I, I tell you what else. Somebody bemoans outside the church. I just don't even feel like getting out of bed today. Well, here's some good Facebook ministry. Just jump right out there and say, me too. I don't know how we do it. Yeah, that's an actual example from this church. If you're embarrassed by that, I hope you are. That's not ministry, friends. That's called commiserating. It's what hell is going to be like. You know what ministry would be? I've had those days. And the power of God can fill you in such a way that you can face any obstacle even if they pull the skin from your, from your body. You can do it. Be encouraged. The Word says. That would be ministry. I tell you, you go ahead and scan your social media network and tell me how much of that is actually going on. What you call ministry might just be an excuse to have some weird emotional pornography where you connect with everybody in the world and you commiserate each other, but you have no actual body of Christ tangible touching fruit in your life. We're the most connected generation in history. And we're the most detached generation in history. I've worked in offices where the person cannot walk from me to JJ, there's a wall between us, instead we email each other. And in that email, we say something that we really would not look at each other and say. And you spend all of your time sitting, creating problems by going, you know, when I read that email, I just know what his tone was towards me. <laughs> well, you're stupid. If you had gone and sat down in front of him, maybe you'd seen his facial expressions or his body language or the kind tone in his voice, and that would not have been the giant mess of drama that it's become. I want to tell you something just as a church, and I'm already gone over my time. It's a good thing you can't fire me. <laughs> as a church, I'm giving you a warning. I'm giving you a warning that I believe has come from Jesus. If you have something that is a correction, a silent grievance, whatever it is, and you can't bring yourself to do anything but text it, personal message it, or some passive form of pigeon carrier, or smoke in the sky that you hope they'll see, you are in sin. Stop it. Go sit down in front of the person and say, I love you with the love of God and this troubles me. You know what? We have so much less bickering and ridiculous devilish behavior. You know, there are actually real problems in the world. There are actually people that have been given bad medical news. Babies that aren't alive when they're born. There are people that need to grow out limbs and need lungs restored. And what is the body of Christ fascinated with? They walked by me and didn't speak to me. Are you kidding me? I private messaged them and I know they were there, but they didn't answer me. Oh, well... My God, we're going to have to write Paul and tell him you never suffered like this. <laughs> Lowering the bar. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot 
Love God whom he has seen. Well, let's just remix that one. If anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he's just being human. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can still love God whom he has not seen. This is what our behavior says to the world. When a pastor sues another pastor, this is what it says. When you go to church's fried chicken and you eat more pastor there than you do church's chicken, this is what it says. Oh, I love God. I just hate that person. Well, we've learned to use better vernacular than that. I love God. I just don't approve of anything that person does. Do you know how wicked they are? And you sit right there and you assassinate them. Is there anybody in here that if you think about it for a moment, I mean, let's just be honest, there's somebody you've never met. I mean, you have never met them, but you've heard enough stories about them, you don't like them. I had a mentor in my life that taught me beautiful things, but I realized a few years in, I didn't like people I'd never met, and it was just based on his stories. How does that work? If I've done that to you, I repent right now. That is so wrong. If you don't like somebody that I have told you stories about, I murdered them to you. And I'm no different than Cain. That is sin. It is horrible sin. And why was it justified? Well, you don't know the error they were in. No, but I know the error that you're in because I can see you sitting right here. Who can ascend God's holy hill? He who casts no slur on his fellow man. I tell you what, there's not been one bigger blown in my life I don't know how you're doing with it, but I'd just be the example. The lamb that was slain is due the reward of his suffering. Jesus purchased your obedience. It's not optional. If he says that you can't love him and hate somebody, guess what? Here's the final word on the subject. No matter how much you try to convince everybody around you that you, you're in good standing with God, i got some people in this world that absolutely hate me, right? I, I probably gave them all just cause. I know I gave a few of them just cause but Jesus happens to like me. He does. And He knows that I did those things. I've pointed guns at people's head in my life. Had them pointed at mine. I beat a guy one time so bad that his braces came through his face. You can't make up for that kind of stuff. You can throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus. You can trust Him. And you know what? Whether you were wronged or you wronged someone, you do not have the right to not forgive. Period. I actually found the kid with the braces. I apologized to him in the tears. He forgave me. I've not seen very many more godly acts than that. I remember his name today even though it was more than 20 years ago. What passes for God's will? This is an important one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. What a pretty scripture. But maybe it should be written like this. Trust in the Lord as much as is reasonably possible. And lean not on your own understanding, especially that theological understanding. And in all your ways do what seems logical, practical, or expedient. And then ask Him to bless whatever path you have chosen. That much more accurately describes what I know of Christians who are praying for God's will. Well, what I'm going to do is this, this, and this. Let's pray and see if it's God's will. Yeah, let's do that. I can see you're very open to hearing that you're absolutely wrong. Well, I'm just not used to a pastor talking to me like this because you never met one. 
well, your church will never grow that big. Well, I, I apparently don't need that many sheep then. <laughs> I promise we're getting close to the end. This is the third to the last slide. I'm not apologizing for it because I think it's good, but I, like you, have little kids that i got to take to kindergarten tomorrow. I, John the Baptist, baptize you with water for repentance, but he is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with water also. I'm going to baptize you with water and the next guy who's so much more powerful, who's amazing, I can't even carry sandals, he's also going to baptize you with water. You can't find an example of Jesus baptizing anybody with water, but this is how we should rewrite it because the alternative means that you are supposed to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and the fire of God. And when that happens, you're empowered to witness. You're empowered to have godly fruit. You're empowered into supernatural gifting. So, well, my church does those things. I'm not talking about the church building. Do you? How many of you can say that you feel the Holy Ghost power on you to witness to people? How many of you can say that you feel the power of the Holy Ghost helping you overcome sin daily? How many of you can say, I feel the power of the Holy Ghost causing me to intercede for my brothers in this room? And some around the world I've never met, but I know we're in trouble. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost. In the charismatic world, if you utter a few syllables, oh, we're good to go. Who stole my Honda? You know, Susie Suzuki, untie my bow tie. You talk about absurd. Those things can be wonderful. I hope God fills you to you speak in 10,000 languages. But if you're not witnessing anybody, you're not interceding anybody, you're not living a godly life, you're not that clanging symbol. Yeah. A gifted symbol, but a symbol. Fruit or no fruit? This is a question that is never asked. How about this scripture? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had need. My goodness, we just have to rewrite that one. There were needy persons among them. That's what it would say today. You know why I would say there were needy persons among them? Because who in this church, who in any church that you know of, is sacrificing everything they have for their brothers? No, if there's a good building campaign, we'll, we'll give you 11%. The early church was so baptized in God's power, so dependent upon Him, that they laid their every possession at the foot of the ministry. And I don't want your possessions. I'm just telling you that. We have found some amazing, unusual ways to meet people's needs lately. This church, I'm so proud of what you do financially. But I want to tell you something. Your finances are not all God wants. And if you're just looking for the minimum to check off in a box and go, oh, I did my duty to God because 10% uh, of my gross adjusted income is 10% on my giving statement, something's wrong with you. I'm just going to tell you that right up front. Something's wrong with you. Now, most pastors would just be thrilled to death because it's only about 10% of most churches that tithe at all. And here we're somewhere around 98, 99%. So I'm thrilled to death. But you know what? It's not good enough. If everything you own does not belong to Him, if you're not asking God on a regular basis, what is it that you want of me? Then how can you say you lost your life in Him that you might gain life? What you could reasonably say is, I've been faithful to give 10% of my monetary area of my life to Him. Let me tell you, not enough. You can't buy God's favor. Not enough. 
Well, what do you want, Eric? Do you want to? It's not about what I want. It's not a matter of 15, 20, or 12, or 30 percent. It's not about that. It's about everything that you have is either at His disposal or it's not. And you know when that's really tested? When you have to take it up on a mountain and kill it. Yeah. You can say it's the Lord's car, but if you won't let somebody borrow it who needs it, it might not be the Lord's car. It might be yours. Boy, there's food for thought. Galatians 5.8 says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is what counts. There should be no needy people, but there always have been. You know why? Because God can count on people numbered among His being selfish. That's why. Same chapter of Deuteronomy that says there will be no poor among you. says when there's poor among you, don't be tight-fisted towards them. Isn't that funny? says there should be no poor among you, and then two sentences later says when there is poor among you. It's because God knows what we're made of. It's selfish to the core. It's got to be pastored and corrected, and you have to be molded into Christ to get rid of it. And you know why your pastor needs you? The same ridiculous disease stock is in him too. Or them. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Fighting to retain or to lose your life. How about this scripture? Listen carefully. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. We don't have to change that one at all. We're living that one just fine. We're very good at protecting whatever part of our life we don't want to be at risk. We're very good at that. We protect our hours of sleep. We protect our physical exhaustion. We protect ourselves emotionally. We just don't get involved in all those people's problems, you know? We protect everything about ourselves. And the gospel is about a reckless abandonment of self so that all that you are, all that you have, all that you ever will be belongs to Him and you will never know if it's not tested. How many men do you know that started off in purity to build the church until it became something? Now it's six flags over Jesus and it's all theirs. That's the end of the slideshow. My hope in doing this is not that we pick on churches. My hope is that we examine ourselves. My hope is that when we read those, we don't skip over uncomfortable words like prophets in the church. I hope some of it was entertaining or humorous. But if that's all it was, then what have we done? What have we done? Guys, you keep coming back, and I love that you do. It's like we're gluttons for punishment, you and I. But in the end of this, what we will have is a life that has been circumcised by Jesus. Everything that is of self, everything that's of flesh falls away, and what is left is His glory. If what you want is your, past, your, your conscience just pacified, you'll go do your time. Find some more padded chairs than these, because these were the cheapest I could buy. You can be uncomfortable here because of the furniture, because of the setting, and be a whole lot more uncomfortable because of the guy that speaks every week. Although I hope not to speak every week. I'd like very much for a lot of you to be preaching. I've green-lighted a bunch of you. You're not beating down my door. Our congregation will not be healthy if it's built around Matthew's personality or my personality. The congregation becomes healthy when you are built into something more than you are today. This happens, it's called edification. In Greek, it's oikotonome. Uh, it means that through correction and encouragement every day, you're rising to become something more than you are. That's our goal. And then what happens is we can lean on each other. 
We can stand together. Pastor gets run over by a train, and it's okay because there's 10 more in the church. You don't got to form a search committee and examine their building projects and look for CEO pastor. There's pastors in the church. That's how it's supposed to be. And if you haven't noticed, it's a five-fold ministry. We're missing some of those. We're more like a, you know, two-and-a-half ministry. You know what that means? It means it's our job to raise up apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists to prepare you for works of service. And you say, well, when I leave, I'll do those things. Well, how about you practice here and we'll all benefit from it? Yeah. Yeah. You think the church doesn't need a prophet? I promise it does. A church could use an evangelist. I promise that too. I don't know what we're good with as a pastor. You know, I mean, everybody, I mean, elders and all of that stuff sounds so weird. The body of Christ is a pretty supernatural thing. The world's always going to call that weird. If you're looking for acceptance, boy, you can't join the body of Christ. You know, go join the YMCA or something. Break league, whatever they do here where everybody gets to play. Right? But the body of Christ is not something that's accepted. They killed our master. They killed him in the most horrible way they could. And he said if they treated him like that, how were they going to treat his students? Paul told Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, not me. I'm doing pretty good. Well, what's that tell you about your life? Stand up. Let's pray. I promise I'm going to try to get this to 830 on Wednesday nights. My little girl whines and fusses and throws things when I wake her up in the morning. And Abby does too. (laughs) See, I told you, your pastor sins all the time. Y'all, we're going to aim for perfection. We're going to spur one another on towards it. And when we fall, two are better than one because one is there to pick the other up. Not to sit there and laugh at him and go, (laughs) you fell. We're there to help each other. Don't hide your faults and your problems. Bring them right out into the light. Expose them. Let Jesus help them. If anybody turns on you in this congregation, Jesus will carve them out of the congregation. Don't be, don't be scared to be vulnerable. This is how we grow together. So, but I don't know if I trust everybody. It's up to the Lord says you have to. Yeah. So we can change that one or we can keep it. In, out, in, out. You just got to decide. Right? Mighty God, Lord, we're asking that as we consume your word, that you will cause us, that you will help us, that you will create in us a heart that wants all of the Word and not just the parts that are sweet. Holy One, we want to learn to be the community of believers you've called us to be. In the name of Jesus, we dedicate our way. Amen. Amen. Amen.